Today is the third message in our sign series, and uh, here's an illustration. Just kind of want to use this as an illustration, as an, a, a kind of a spiritual snapshot of our nation and just our present spiritual reality. So imagine this, we're, we're driving down a road, we're traveling down a very dangerous road. It's one of those uh, winding roads. If you've ever been in the Smoky Mountains, there's, there's a, when you go up to Klingerman's Dome, there's, there's a road in particular that if you look at your GPS, it just looks like a circle, right? And just, but anyways, imagine you're driving down one of those roads, a winding road, a dangerous road. There's warning signs all along that road to tell you to slow down, take it easy, what kind of curves are ahead of you. And the, the, the warning signs are posted. And to top it all off, you got environmental factors, you got heavy rain, you got fog, and it makes the, the road conditions hazardous. And then you're driving too fast and refusing to slow down. And then to top it all off, we're distracted, texting while you're driving on a winding road, going too fast in poor weather conditions. Now, no, none of us want to be in that vehicle with that person. If you're that person who drives that way, we don't want to be in the car with you. Okay, you're a danger to yourself and you're a danger to the rest of us. But that is where we are as a nation. That's exactly the scenario of our nation spiritually. We're, we're just driving recklessly. The warning signs are there, but we're still making these very poor, poor choices as a nation. I think the remedy to that is honestly, and I don't want to overuse this word, and I don't think we want to make it too religious or too familiar, but it's true. Our nation needs revival. And when I speak of revival, I mean this. We need repentance, we need salvation, and we need a restoration to righteousness. You know, I'm not talking about a, a, a kooky revival or a flaky revival or a shaky revival. I'm talking about a revival that changes people's lives and changes the trajectory of our culture. We're on this, this reckless uh, journey, and it needs to change. And the only way that's going to change is we have a move of God, that we experience a move of God that changes us. My fear is this, that we might not be facing the possibility of revival, but we're actually facing judgment. And that's really my worry. I believe God wants to revive our nation. I believe that God wants to pour out his spirit. But I think we're just too stubborn, to be honest with you. I know the warning signs are there, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And I think that's part of our problem. We're just too stubborn. And we're living in the last days. But here's the question. Are we at the end of those last days? Are, are, are we ready to see Jesus return for his church? Now, the Bible gives us plenty of information about the condition of the church when Jesus returns. Now, I'm like anyone. I pray for revival. I hope for revival. And I, I pray that the church is experiencing revival. But honestly, when I read the scriptures and I get a snapshot of the, the church when Jesus returns, it's not a church that's in revival. It is a church that is in decline. I'll give you a couple examples. First Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit says, expressly says, in the latter times, the last part of the last times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Later, Paul says this to the, to the church of the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, speaking of the day or, or the time of Christ's return, will not come unless there is a falling away, an apostasy, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The Bible says in the last days there will be a great falling away, and many believers will depart from the faith. But Jesus gives us this also in an illustrative form. He gives us a parable. He talks about 
a, a situation where he's using 10 virgins, 10, 10 brides. Why any man would want to marry 10 is beyond me. But anyways, 10, 10 virgins. And the, the virgins represent the spiritual nature of the church when the bridegroom returns. Now, Jesus made it very clear that he was coming and that when he comes, this is what he expects. When he returns for his church, this is what he's expecting to find. He's expected to find his bride dressed in white, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, and she should be waiting, prepared to leave. According to this parable, only half of the brides are, are presentable. They're only, only half are prepared. Only half are ready for the return. And Jesus returns, and half of the church will be ready, and half of the church won't be ready. Now, that's not a church in revival. That's a church in decline. That's a church that is in a apostate state. For those who miss the rapture, tribulation awaits them. Why on earth would anybody want to, to be a part of that is beyond me. God's tried to save us from that. The tribulation will be nothing but seven years of literal hell on earth. Being a Christian during that time will be the most difficult time in the history of man to serve God. Not just to be a Christian, but to serve God. That'll be the most difficult time to live for God. Why would anybody want to live during that time when you can live for God right now? Are we paying attention to the signs? Is Jesus coming? Is he coming? Is his return at hand? The warning signs, I believe, are there. And the warning signs are really a demonstration of God's love. They're trying to warn us of this, about our spiritual commitment. Because again, if we look at the word of God, if we look at the church when Jesus comes, it's, a, it's an apostasy. It's a church that is falling away. It's a church that is in decline. It's not a church that's committed. So there are these warning signs, warning us of our spiritual condition. Are we paying attention to the signs? God is showing us individually signs. Are we paying attention to these signs? Let me ask you this question. If Jesus would return tomorrow morning, Monday, at any time, I'm not saying he is, I'm just saying, if Jesus returned Monday morning, what would this church look like next Sunday? Would it be empty? Would it be half full? Or would we see little to no change in our attendance? In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus shares a, a number of signs with his disciples concerning the end times. And Jesus was in the temple courts. He's teaching the word of God. The disciples remarked about the magnificent buildings. And if you know anything about the temple, I'm sure some of you have seen these models of the temple that are re uh, recreations of uh, Herod's temple when Jesus was alive. And something we miss is the, the temple is more of a complex. It's 35 acres of buildings and courtyards in the temple. So it's a very large piece of real estate. So Jesus looks at the temple and all of its grandeur. This is what he says in Matthew 24, 2. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now let's put that into perspective, into something we could really kind of wrap our minds around. Imagine Jesus being in Washington, D.C., and, you know, the government district in Washington, D.C. Is, is fairly large. You know, we're talking about the White House, the Capitol, the, you know, the, the memorials, all those things kind of encompassing the, the Capitol district. Imagine Jesus saying this, all this is going to be gone. It's going to be obliterated. It's not even going to be here. Well, what would our reaction be? Number one, it'd be surprised. And then I think like anyone, we would say this. We would say, how, when, what, what's the reason? Why would this all be destroyed? And that's really 
the significance that's taking place here with the disciples. And Jesus is asked three questions then. Now he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. Now he doesn't answer that one. And again, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When will these things be? What will be the sign of his coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus, again, declines to answer the timing. And if anyone knows the timing, they're a false prophet. Anyone who claims to know when Jesus is returning is a false prophet. No man knows. But he did do this. He shared some signs with us that would help us to discern the nearness of his return. Here are those signs. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Number one, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Not might, they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not troubled. For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows, just labor pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now Jesus made the statement and when he starts out, he says the temple's going to be destroyed. And I think there's a significant reason why he states that first. The temple is the center of Judaism. So at that point, remember, God does not dwell in people. He, he can't because we're not yet born again. Jesus has not yet atoned for our sins. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in people. People are not yet born again because Jesus has not yet atoned for their sins at this point. So where does God dwell? Where does God live, so to speak? Now, we understand this, and the Jews understood this, that God is omnipresent. But there was something significant and special about the presence of God in the temple. In fact, we know this, there was a special place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God would manifest. So think about this. Where is God going to live? If the temple's destroyed, where is God going to meet with his people? So that is very perplexing to them in their mind and in their, in their understanding. So they, again, they understand he's omnipresent, but he manifests himself in that building, and that building is going to be destroyed. Something significant is taking place. You know, in 66 AD, that's 33 years, basically 33 years after Jesus spoke these words, the Jews began to revolt against the Romans. We call it the, the first Jewish revolt. And it lasted four years. And the, the whole province began to revolt against the, Roma, the Romans. And so four years of this revolt, finally, the Romans have enough men and power. They just simply go in and just obliterate the Jewish people. The city is leveled and the temple is leveled. You know, when you look at the old city of Jerusalem, a lot of things we think of, that's the, the, the city Jesus walked in. The, the, what you see today is what the crusaders built. That's not what Jesus saw when he was there. That's why there's this mock of the temple that's not there. But anyway, 70 AD is when this came to pass, when the temple was destroyed. 
And it caused really a lot of Christians to, to wonder this. And, and even Christians today wonder, maybe the signs that Jesus shared were signs for them in that day in the first century. Maybe since the temple was destroyed, and that's the context of the signs, maybe the signs that Jesus talked about was for those first century Christians. And you can really understand why they might draw that conclusion. But there's one problem, how Jesus ends his, his message on these signs. Because he says this, at the conclusion of all these signs, this will take place. So then will appear the Son of Man in heaven, And then all the peoples on the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great, with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Well, church, we know that these signs are for us today because Jesus has not yet come. He's not yet returned. And the signs he shared will continue to occur and continue to happen with frequency, more frequency and more intensity. And every time they get more intense and every time they get closer, they're warning us that his arrival is near. Now, Jesus shared many signs. We read about those with his disciples. But did you notice this? There's one, in, one sign in particular that he repeated. And if we go on to read the entirety of the signs, because I stopped short, Four times he mentions this warning. Four times he warns his disciples about this sign. Here it is. I'm going to read each verse, Matthew 24. It's going to be 4, 5, 11, and 24. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Verse 24, for false, pro- for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive even if, pos- if possible, even the elect four times. Now I'm no rocket scientist, I'm no genius, but if Jesus repeats something four times, I think we ought to take note of that. We live in a time of deception. I mean, listen, no one tells the truth in politics today. They're all liars. I mean, if you believe, honestly, anything that comes out of their mouths, either side, you're a fool. They're, they're complete liars. Completely, that's the age that we live in, deception. It's not about truth. It's about what lie can we, what lie can we sell to gain whatever we need. And if, if we go blindly into this world thinking one side's telling the truth or the other, you're, you're, you're crazy. I mean, you are deceived yourself. So we live in an age or a time of deception. That is the the time we live in. It's easy to be deceived. But the best way to to escape deception is to know the truth. Now, if you're looking for truth in this world, in the system of this world, you're looking for truth in the wrong place. You'll never find it in this world. You can't find it in the systems of man. You can only find truth right here. It's the only place you're going to find it. If you're expected to find truth in the Republicans or the Democrats or independents or whoever, you're, you're nuts. It's not going to happen. So it's only in God's word you're going to find truth. And that's the best way to avoid deception. Knowing about the truth and knowing the truth are two different things. Many people know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And those people who don't know Jesus, they just know about Jesus, are easily deceived. Many people have knowledge. They have knowledge about this word but they don't know this word, and they are easily deceived. 
What I find remarkable among people who claim to know Jesus is how poorly they know or understand the word of God. Now, Jesus himself stated that he is the word of God. He is the word of God made flesh. For many people, the word of God isn't life. It's, it's just information. And so if you look at this book as just information, you are easily deceived. This word is life. The, the, Jesus is life. The words he gave are life-giving. He is the word of life. And I'm shocked at how many people claim to know Jesus but don't know his word. Those two are inseparable, to know Jesus and to know his word. Some, some people will claim to know Jesus, but they will mistake their feelings or their thoughts or their gut reactions for the Holy Spirit. Easily deceived. I've heard people say some really outlandish things, claiming that the Holy Spirit told them to do something that was completely out of alignment with God's word. The very word the Holy Spirit inspires. Now think about that. That doesn't make any sense. God isn't double-minded. He doesn't say one thing here and then he tells you something different. I've heard people say some really outlandish things. Again, completely out of alignment with God's word. And we have to be wise. We have to know God's word. If we mistake our voice, anyone else's voice, for the voice of the Holy Spirit, we are easily deceived. And I'm amazed how many Christians listen to men and women who are false teachers. And the reason why we have false teachers, and this is, this is really easy for us to understand, <clears throat> the reason why we have false teachers that exist in this world today and are accepted, I mean, many of them stand behind pulpits and churches and large churches, small churches. Some of them run organizations. Some of them are just in different places of, of leadership, but they're all over the place. And the reason why they are there, the reason why they exist is for this very reason is 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, that's a key right there, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The reason why false teachers are in existence is because of us because of what we want to hear because sometimes we don't want to hear the truth we just want to hear what sets well here there are times when christians don't want to hear sound doctrine and let's face it, that happens all the time and maybe it's because they're hurting maybe it's because they're upset maybe it's because they're confused and they want to hear something that really just justifies the way they think and feel. You know, some, sometimes we just, we like to have a pity party. We like someone, something to come beside us and just make us feel better. Agree with us, pat us on the back, say, there, there, I understand. We just, we're human beings. We want that. We crave that. But that opens us up to deception, church. There are men and women who claim to be anointed by God that share a message to people who want to hear a certain message rather than the message they need to hear. See, deception is a powerful tool. It's one of the most powerful, most used tools that Satan uses against the body of Christ. And every one of us are vulnerable because every one of us have flesh. See, when life doesn't make sense, that's when Satan likes to slip in and says, well, I'm going to offer a little something here that might make sense. Satan was able to deceive one-third, imagine that, one-third of the heavenly hosts. Satan was able to deceive Adam and Eve in a, living in a sinless environment, walking with God, knowing God, and he was able to deceive them. Now, if you don't think you can be deceived, who are you? Satan understands this. When it came to Adam and Eve, 
Satan understood their itch. They have itching ears. So what does Satan do? I know how to scratch it. What does he do? He offers them a scratch. Here's the scratch. Here's the itch. Here's the scratch. Genesis 3, 4, and 5. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. That's their desire. That's their itch. And Satan knows how to scratch it. Tells them if they eat the forbidden fruit, the very thing that God doesn't want you to have is what's going to make you like him. And do you know that is partially true? Because after they ate, they, God said, now man is like one of us, knowing good from evil. Satan always has a little bit of truth. Because that's what makes the, truth, the deception so, so palatable. They will be like God, and that was the scratch. Adam and Eve allowed the desires of their flesh to supersede the truth of God's word. Satan used deception, a lie that appealed to the flesh, to convince Adam and Eve their disobedience was warranted. Now, if we all look in our lives in areas where we've fallen, or maybe where we have backslid, or maybe where we have been times where we walked away from God, you'll find at the core of that that very truth right there. What happened was this. Satan used deception, appealed, used a lie to appeal to your flesh, to convince you that what God was offering was wrong, or that this, it was okay in the situation. That no matter what God says in the entirety of his world, you can disobey God in this area, and it's just fine. Satan uses the same tactic against us every day. Deception, false teachers, false, false doctrines, they're, they're all over the world. They're in our community. And if people don't know the word of God as they should, they're prime targets for deception. A false teacher is present, it's because of people who don't know God's word. If you have people that know and understand God's word, then false teachers have no place. They, they are quickly vanquished. They have to go somewhere else. Somewhere else to peddle lies. But if they understand this, there is an itch, they know how to scratch it. And if you only know about the word of God, or let's say this, you have traditions or beliefs beliefs based on the word of God. And boy, church, I'm talking to you right now. If you have beliefs and if you have traditions based on God's word, you are a prime, prime subject for deception. There are people in our community, they'll identify as Christian, yet no fruit, no proof, just a title, just words. They've been deceived. They've been deceived, lured to believe that all they got to do is say, I'm a Christian. I I believe this, I believe that, and I'm a Christian. Half-truths, Now, if you want to call yourself a Christian and live like hell all you want, there's a church for you. There's a church, there's a theology out there for you. You don't have to go very far to find it. You'll find it, and it will satisfy your desire. Someone will scratch your itch. They'll say, it's okay, there's grace. There's grace to do that. There's grace to live like hell. Recently, I saw someone post this on social media. That doctrine is anti-Bible. What kind of lunatic posts that, and what kind of... What are the comments on that? I was shocked to see the comments. I mean, I just immensely, instantly went back to, to one verse. And of course, there's, there's many you can choose from, but 1 Timothy 4, 16, all doctrine is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for, first and foremost, number one, doctrine. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness and how to live right, that the man of God may be equipped, complete, 
thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, when people say there isn't a need for doctrine, they defy the word of God themselves. Now, you hear that person, you should really just avoid that person or run away from them. Are there false doctrines created by man? Absolutely. But are you going to take the ones that are incorrect and wrong and whitewash and say, well, they're all wrong because they're all man-made? Then you end up this place. All doctrine is bad. And you will oppose God's word. Easily deceived. And most of the time, these people who make these claims, they themselves have weird and strange doctrines. I don't know how many times I've seen this because I just get interested in people and they'll make these comments. So I just kind of read their posts. I'm like, this person is weird. They have some outlandish ideas. Church, keep your heart humble, remain pure, and you'll, you'll avoid deception. Sound doctrine is ignored when our, heart, our hearts are in the right place, but we'll receive impure doctrine, false teachings, when our hearts are in the wrong place. We're lured by our flesh to think this, that knowledge, and you've got to be careful, even in some Christian circles, knowledge is really promoted. That if you just know the word... It will keep you from deception. Yet if you think about this, think about just watch the History Channel or some programs about the Bible or archaeology of the Bible. You'll find people that study this as knowledge. That there is so much, there is so much information in here to help us find this, this tomb or, or this treasure or this missing thing or this missing thing. It's just knowledge to them. It's just information. And if you handle the Word of God as just information, you are easily deceived. Lured to believe that, that if I just have knowledge of the truth, that'll keep me from deception. But there are plenty of false prophets that take this very word, twist it, turn it, contort it, whatever it is, plenty of knowledge, probably really good knowledge, and will use it to deceive. Knowledge itself will not protect you. It is not a means to protect you from deception. And don't lose this perspective. Throughout the word of God, Satan is able to twist and misuse the word of God. Listen, we know this. When Jesus was tempted, God in the flesh is tempted. Satan knows who he is. It's not like, well, it's just this Jesus guy. He knows he's God in the flesh. What does he do? He tries to take the word made flesh and tempt him, twist his own word to deceive him. Now, again, you can say, well, this is stupid. But it's not. It shows you this. If he thinks he's able to deceive Jesus... And who are you? Who are, who are we? It's a tool that he uses all the time, and we've got to be wise. Knowledge is corruptible, but the human heart, a pure heart, a humble heart, it will guard you from the power of deception. Bible warns us about people who will deceive others by performing signs and wonders. Look at this, Matthew 24, for false Christ and false prophets will arise, show great signs and wonders to deceive, even possible, even the elect. And that's why having a humble heart is so important. Because look, you could have an itch, they know how to scratch it, and now there's signs and wonders. Oh my gosh, Jesus has just come back. I mean, how do you think people are, are deceived? You know, I'm, I'm, I've mentioned this before, serial killers and cult leaders fascinate me. And he, here's why it fascinates me. It also shows us how easily people are bamboozled. It fascinates me. Do you know that often in, in cults, um, even Christian cults, uh, cults that are based on Christianity, do you know that often there are demonstrations of signs and wonders in those cults? That each one of them will say, it, it, we thought he was Jesus because of what he did. Now you can say, I don't believe this or not, but listen, 
We're, we're talking about people that were logical, that were functioning in society, that were hurting. He knew how to scratch it. And signs, because Satan will perform signs. I mean, we find that in the Bible. And by, Jesus himself warns us that they will great, do, show great signs and wonders to deceive. And this is what we have to remember. This is why the heart is so important. If someone, again, if you have an itch and someone knows how to scratch it, even though it's something slightly off about that person, you'll say this, it's okay. I'm going to look past that because, man, signs and wonders are being performed through them. But if you have a humble heart, if you have a pure heart, signs and wonders aren't so deceptive. You can see through it. It's not a matter of knowledge that guards our hearts. It's humility and the purity of the heart that gives you the vantage point of discernment. You know, locally, our biggest problem isn't false teachers, false prophets. It's self-deception. We have false prophets in our, in our community. They're in every community. But our biggest problem is self-deception. Self-deception is defined as the action or practice of allowing oneself to believe that a false or unvalidated feeling, idea, or situation is true. People are, are self-deceived are the hardest people to reach. Why? Because what they want, what they desire, what they need is all believed, it's all, it's believed, it's all mixed up in half-truths. I've never seen a community more religious than ours. Now, most of you have lived here all your life, lived in four different cities. The most religious community I've ever seen. It's a stronghold. Sexual morality is a stronghold in our community. Deception, religion, is a stronghold in our community. That's why soul winning is so difficult. How can you win people to Jesus who are already saved? In their minds, they're already saved. Now again, they have no fruit, no evidence of being saved, but they say they're saved. How do you win that person to Jesus? Because they're deceived. They're self-deceived. Church, there are people in this church who are deceived by religion. They've allowed religion to insulate themselves from the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. They know about Jesus, they know about Christian beliefs, but they, they put on this mask, this veil. And that's what religion really is. It's just a mask. It's, it's worn to church on Sunday or anytime conviction gets near you, you put it on real quick. It's a mask that says outwardly, it's okay. Everything's okay. I, you know, I'll be honest with you, I've been here 10 years. I'm tired of hearing the saying, people saying it's okay. When I know darn well and good, it's not okay. It's okay to say it's not okay. No one's gonna stone you. No one's gonna look down on you. Everyone tries to say it's okay. And you try to even make yourself think it's okay when it's not okay. Mask hides the real issues. That's the, that is the nature of self-deception. That's why religion just is so comfortable in that setting. It makes you feel like, you know, I've got something to hold on to. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father... Now, here's the, here's the uh, religious opinion in our community. It's not about works. You can't work your way to heaven. And I'm not saying you can. You can't earn your salvation. But look at this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, not believes or thinks about or believes to do the will of the, of the Father. It's he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do signs and wonders? And then I will declare them, I never knew you. Depart me, you who practice lawlessness, you who are a law unto yourself. 
You are self-deceived. This got religion. That's your, that's your lawlessness. As a pastor, you know, I'm, I'm trained to do this through God's word. I don't look for words. I look for fruit. See, an apple is an apple. It's not an orange. An apple could call itself an orange all day long, but it's still an apple. Anyone could spin a convincing lie, a narrative to convince themselves. And that's the, the power of self-deception is what we tell ourselves and we believe ourselves. But the fruit never lies. You could come to church, have a set of beliefs, may even had a spiritual experience at one time, served in ministry. That doesn't mean a hill of beans if you aren't in right relationship with God. What did Jesus tell the church of Laodicea? And if there's any church that is today, prophetically speaking, it's this church. If you want a spiritual snapshot of the church in the last days, it's right here. It's the church of Laodicea. And the angel of the church of, La of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do you not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Here again, I'm fine. Everything's okay. But everything's not okay behind the mask. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, white garments, speaking of righteousness and holiness, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness be not revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. This is the church today. This letter can be written to the whole assembly of God. We got religion. We got traditions. We have works, but we're not hot or cold. We're somewhere between ourselves and Jesus. And I would lean more heavily towards ourselves than Jesus. And either way, it doesn't matter. It's a bad place to be because there's only one place to be in a relationship with Jesus, and that's with him. Jesus, Jesus offers a rebuke. He calls for honesty and transparency, but we put on a mask. We, we deceive ourselves. We harden ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We hear those words, and we say, that's not for us. Some of you in here right now say, this is not for me, and it's directly for you. Standing at the door, Jesus is not, can you just take off the mask for a little bit? Can I really see what's behind there? He wants to sit down and fellowship with you. He wants, but the religious you, he don't want to see. He wants to see the real you. Some of you won't admit this. There's a veil between you and God. There's a veil between you and God here in worship. And you'll make excuses. I don't like the songs. I don't like the beat. I don't like the sound. And it's just a veil of religion. Because if it didn't exist, it would mean anything. Where you are, what language, what style, you would worship God. It's a veil of religion. Jesus wants to sit down with you. He wants to fellowship with you. But if you allow stuff like that to get in between you, what's wrong with you? Do you think when you get to heaven, it's all going to be your style? Your desires, your wants, your needs? I mean, we're talking over thousands of years of human history. Probably none of us got it right. Convicting power of the Holy Spirit is evidence of God's love. And that's why he said, as many as he loves, he chastens, he rebukes. Now, we in our super sensitive society say, oh, why does he hurt me? Why does he want to rebuke me? We want to protect ourselves because he loves you. That's why. 
Our response to his loving conviction should be repentance, but it's not. We throw up a mask. Religion is self-deceiving. It's a veil that hides us from the truth. And I hope I can just raise the mirror of God's word for just a moment here so that you can look at that mirror. And look inside of that mirror. I want you to look at the mirror today and honestly answer the question for yourself. When I read this verse, if you feel this need to do this, if you feel a need to justify yourself, if you, need a, if you feel a little something in you, you're like, well, I've been saved for years. I've been in church for years. That is called deception. That is just religion raising its ugly head in your life. The Holy Spirit is trying to expose that. He's trying to bring something to the surface. What does religion do? It just keeps on pushing it down. Self-deception. Deceive yourself further. And what do you do? You make yourself hardened to the Holy Spirit. So when I read this verse, if, if you feel the need to justify yourself in any way, based on your past, your past ministry, your church attendance, serving, giving, you're allowing your flesh to defend itself. Is this your present spiritual reality? Matthew chapter 16, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. If you want to avoid self-deception, right there you have, deny yourself, deny your flesh. Your feelings will lie to you. It will, it will never tell the truth. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to come after him. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What, what, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? And this is what we want. And this is the power of self-deception. This is the power of religion. We want to be saved. We want to go to heaven. But we want to do it on our terms. And it doesn't work that way. Jesus very clearly says, if you want to follow him, if you want to be his disciple, come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. It's very simple, but we try to weasel out of it. Well, I have a job. I have children, I have this, I have wants, I have needs. I have, and that's the power of religion. Because the power of religion will allow you to have those excuses. A humble heart walks in freedom. And if we're honest with ourselves, honest with Jesus, deception begins to lose its power. If you're a disciple of Jesus, truly belong to him, that means you live your life in denial, denying yourself. Now I'm going to say this, we all need to work on that. Do you lay down your life daily? And I want to because I see the futility in not laying down my life daily. How many of us pick up our lives daily for ourselves and follow our own wills, our own desires? What does religion do? It's okay. That's what grace is for. No, grace is for you to follow Jesus. I know it goes against the grain of our flesh, and that's a warning. That is a warning. Do you belong to you, or do you belong to Jesus? There's no in-between. Are you carrying your own cross? Because the cross is death. We do understand that, right? The, the cross, any person who was carrying a cross was not life, it was death. Do you carry the cross daily and die to self daily? If not, that's why deception so easily gets ingrained into us. And if allowed to live, it will deceive you. It will begin to say your wants and desires are okay, and there's grace for that, it's okay. But religion never satisfies. It always makes you this. It always makes you like this. And you become apathetic, and apostasy is right around the corner. I don't care if you've got saved, been baptized, did this, did that, or the other. I don't care. If you aren't carrying your cross and following Jesus, 
you can and will be deceived by your own flesh. The way to, to defeat self-deception and religion is a full embrace of the cross. And I hope the mirror of God's word does this. And the convicting power of the Holy Spirit shows you something about your present reality. Be honest with yourself, honest with God, humble yourselves and embrace the cross. Church, that's God's call in our life. 